Welcome to the Launch University Podcast, turning good intentions into reality in your career, business, and life. Here's your host, Shane Benson. Welcome back to another episode of the Launch University Podcast. I got with me today, David Farmer. What's up, Shane? And our special guest, Michael Sims. Thanks for being here today, Michael. Thank you. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Well, I really appreciate and, it. And Shane, we're remote on location. Make sure you point that out, yeah, too. Yeah, we so. really are. I'm, I'm pretty excited and proud of ourselves. Actually, we have our like remote podcasting equipment here in uh, L.A., so it makes us feel sound a little cooler. Um, but we're, uh, yeah, we're spending some time here on work and as well as just talking to some really cool people this week. So, Michael, you being one of those, so thanks oh, for taking man. some time. We appreciate it. And, you know, just as a reminder, I mean, one of the reasons that we do this, a big reason we do this is we're always trying to connect other launchers with other launchers because there's usually in our journeys where we might be in one spot and we're trying to get to the next spot and oftentimes through a connection or a conversation, we can actually help people bridge those gaps. And so that's what this is all about. And so we want to talk about uh, you specifically, Michael, and your journey. You have a company called Hook and Gaff Watch Company, and um, we thought it'd be fun to kind of dive in and talk about some of the things you're learning as a launcher, as an entrepreneur, and uh, kind of take us on that journey. And so thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Fantastic. Thank you for allowing me to, to share this. And uh and I'm humbled by the opportunity, and we've been at this going on five years now, so I by no means know, <laughs> know much of anything, but if I can share anything that helps somebody kind of launch their business and get through those first couple of years, by all means, I'm going to share it. So thank you for the opportunity. Hey, five years is a huge milestone. Yeah. I mean, there are so many hills you have to climb to get to five years. So yeah. well, uh, thank you. That's worth a huge congratulations. But there's that also means you've been you got some uh, war stories you can share. So correct. <laughs> yeah, so we'll uh, we'll spend some time learning together. And why don't we start at the very the best part is at the beginning. Like, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what drove you to this uh, idea of starting your own business and maybe a little bit of your background. That'd be awesome. Sure. Well, let's go way back. I, I grew up um, playing golf, enjoying the outdoors, like a lot of young boys, enjoying fishing, hiking, hunting, and, uh, and then really did grow up on the golf course as soon as I got into my high school years, ended up getting a scholarship to Clemson to play golf. And we won the national championship in 03. Um, just won the national championship in football, so it's a great time to be a Tiger right wow. now. But yeah, had a had a uh, background with just being outdoors and golf, and, and so that plays an important part in the watch business and, and why I designed the watch later. But when I went to Clemson, studied engineering, industrial engineering, came out, uh, started my own insurance agency, so I was somewhat of an entrepreneur right out of school, ended up not wanting to go into industrial engineering and working in a manufacturing facility, but kind of wanted to uh, continue to be able to play golf. So I chose insurance <laughs> and uh, learned a lot there. Learned a lot about customer service, being able to talk to people on the phone and interact with your customer face-to-face, um, working with their needs, what their needs are, and for insurance, retirement. And as a young person, that was just valuable, valuable experience. And then, obviously, we're here on business. My wife, at the same time, not yet my wife, was in uh, graduate school down at the Citadel, ended up getting a job with Chick-fil-A and ultimately becoming a Chick-fil-A operator. So after my five years in the insurance agency, we, we sold the agency because she got an opportunity to um, 
get her own store in Columbia. So our journey took us uh, down to the middle part of the state. I'm from South Carolina, and uh, we live in, in Columbia now. And so for the last nine years, we've been part of the Chick-fil-A family with uh, two restaurants now. So that's so been you a went blessing. from selling insurance to selling chicken. That's exactly right. All right. Selling insurance to slinging chicken. That's what I did. Enjoyed the hands-on aspect of the business. I helped her in the business those first, really the first six, seven years. So everything from waking up at 4 a.m. to go unload a truck, which was really my favorite thing to do. I liked to show our uh, our employees that I was willing to do the what I considered to be one of the hardest jobs in the store, which was unloading a 300-piece truck three times a week, right? At that time, we were getting them three times a week, and then jumping into the fray in the kitchen, and um, I enjoyed all of that. And then, obviously, interacting with guests on an exponentially larger scale with Chick-fil-A because of the number of transactions we're doing on a, on a daily basis. And, and that was really great experience, really great experience. So you learn a lot about customer service when you work at Chick-fil-A. Uh, a lot about how to deal with not only customers, but you know how to manage people and lead people and and um, employees, and and that was quite a growth process for a young person in their twenties. You reference uh, your wife, Britt. I uh, was in a, a meeting with Britt. She was at our support center in Atlanta on an advisory panel for us. So shout out to Britt. Love her, wonderful operator. And we're just having a conversation, and she was telling me about you doing this. And I'm like, well, what's the name of the company? And she said, Hook and Gap. I'm like, I've seen those ads. Nice. So we'll come back to the marketing, uh, how you've sort of built the brand up. But I'm like, I have seen those ads in cool magazines. Those are really cool ads. So that's yeah. how we started to kind of, you were referencing how you get connected. She tipped us off. Well, you know, it's good to know the ads are working, so thanks for yeah. <laughs> so I'm, And that your wife is advocating <laughs> yeah, on your behalf, there we go. too. Which is always great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I want to try and draw the connection here. So you go from insurance to then um, helping Britt in the business, specifically Chick-fil-A. Help us how, draw the line to watches specifically <laughs> or being in business for yourself specifically. Okay. And kind of how did you make that leap? What was the timing of like of that, and how did you make that next step? Well, I'm going to reference one of your other podcasts here. I think it was Day, day Job to Dream Job. Mm. So I don't think anybody advocates walking into the office one day and dropping your apron or your name tag and saying, I'm, I'm out the door. You're going to burn some bridges. You're going to... You know, you got to do it the right way, um, particularly when that person's your wife. You don't want to do that. So. Yeah, that's going to come back and hurt you in more ways than one. <laughs> yeah, so um, I've got a yellow spiral-bound notebook that I kept since 2010. In fact, on the outside of it, it says 2010 plan. So the idea for the watch sparked in 2010, which is way back. And, and I spent probably three, four years researching watch companies, researching outdoor brands that I thought highly of, that I thought that I wanted to emulate if I were to launch a business with this watch. And I really did my research, made the prototypes, tested the prototypes. So the idea for the watch came from this. I need to talk a little bit about the watch. We'll go back to my upbringing you know, on the golf course and fishing, hunting. The watches that I wore back in those days would never hold up. So I was wearing a, a cheaper watch, and I won't mention name brands, but the types of brands that I was wearing <clears throat> maybe would last me a year, maybe a little longer, but 
inevitably they would succumb to water intrusion. Uh, they'd get scratched on the face. And so I started learning about the components of watches and, and what makes a watch a, you know, quote unquote, good watch and what makes one that's not going to hold up to those pressures, right, of being outdoors and just banging the watch around. And, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what I wanted in a watch, particularly if, if those who are listening go to our website, they'll see that all of our watches have a, a left side crown placement. It's a non-traditional crown. And for a golfer, you can swing in complete comfort with this watch on your left wrist without the crown digging in the back of your hand. And I see Shane looking over here. He just, he's just not I'm noticing. I'm very fascinated by that. <laughs> he's just now noticing that I the watch that. has the, the crown on the other side. So that's, that was step number one. How do, I, how do I make a watch that has a crown on the other side? And what I learned was it's not just as easy as spinning the dial around and turning the watch the other way. You actually have to customize the movement, even for the most basic time date movements, which is the mechanism on the inside of the watch. They have to customize it so the date wheel lines up. So that was going to be obstacle number one when we wanted to create a prototype. But can I say that's, I think that's, that's brilliant branding because um, Seth Godin, um, he talks about, he's got a book on Purple Cow, and the whole premise of that book is don't look like every other cow. You got to be different. You got to be distinct. You got to stand out. So I just love the fact that you went to the extra effort, trouble, and probably expense to figure out how to be different. Exactly. I want, I want to add something too, as well, because I think it might, it's probably part of your industrial engineering background. But the design thinking process that you went through, I think, is really fascinating. So think about we talk about this model where we talk about understand the problem. So who's who's the customer? What's the problem we're trying to solve? But then you've mentioned on three or four occasions already the power of prototyping. Talk a little bit about that. And and I know we keep interrupting you, but I want to make sure we get some of this in here. I'll back up to the first part of that, the the engineering background. So I get asked a lot, uh, you must be a watch guy, and they'll start talking about Breitlings and Audemars Piguet's and all these fine watches. And it goes one in, in one ear and out the other because I'm actually not a watch guy. My business partner's a watch guy. He's my a lifelong friend I grew up with in high school and college, and he helps me do my design work. And so I get a lot of the, the, the aesthetic qualities of our watch come from his eye. But what you just mentioned about the engineering background, me not being a watch guy, I looked at a traditional watch, the way it's been made for 300 plus years, and said, why do they do it that way? So sometimes I think it takes a person from outside a particular industry who's not an expert on something who just asks a simple question, why? You know, why is it, why is it done that way? You can do it better this way. Or, and, you know, my background as an industrial engineer is in ergonomics and, and mappings and, you know, making sure that things are, are done a certain way to alleviate pain and stress and, you know, to have that traditional crown on the right side of the watch digging in the back of your hand when you're swinging a golf club or lifting a, a gun or fly fishing, you know, it's, it can be uh, over time, it can actually leave a callus in the back of your hand. So we're going to make it comfortable. Hmm. Um, Interesting. So yeah. that led you to, okay. The you, prototyping. The yes. prototyping of that. You've mentioned that. Did you, how did you go about doing that? Perfect question. I love it. So during this whole research phase, I probably met with three different watchmakers here in, in the state. So some of them met with one in North Carolina who ended up ultimately being our watchmaker and helps us assemble watches um, to this day. And met with a guy in town in Columbia, met with another guy in Spartanburg. 
and just learned the business, you know, learned, learned uh, how to make watches and just learned a, a tremendous amount. So how did we make the prototypes? Well, ended up, these guys can't source the parts. What these guys do here in the States mostly is repair watches. That's what they're doing for local jewelers. So if you damage your Rolex, you take it to your local jeweler you bought it from, they, ended up, they end up shipping it to one of these watchmakers who contract, they contract with to fix their watches. So they're, not, they're usually not sourcing enough parts to be able to create a prototype. So that was a challenge. And that's a great question because today's, there's some overseas factories and, and particularly websites that we now have access to where we can access these factories like Alibaba for one. You can jump on Alibaba. You can do a search for, you know, packaging. I want packaging. And it can be everything from a, you know, Yeti cup that you're going to use as packaging, which we kind of do for our, um, our golf watch, which is neat, or, you know, dive cases, things like that. And you can find a factory. You can communicate directly with the factory, whereas 15 years ago, you'd have to go to China or go to Switzerland or go to Germany to find these factories. So the prototyping phase for me involved me contacting some Swiss watchmakers and trying to figure out who could make a prototype. And I was able to do it through certain websites and researching, and it's much easier. I'll say it gets easier and easier, but back then it was kind of tough. I had to, had to kind of do my research, and I found a guy in Switzerland who was willing to make a few prototypes. We got the prototypes, and we tested them with guys who were going to put them through the ringer and would let us know that we really had something. Because if the watch didn't hold up under the pressures of being on the boat, in tough conditions, then we were going to be sunk before we ever launched a business, you know, particularly with anglers. They are very, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they're very outspoken. They'll let you know what they think about their equipment. You know, if you have something good, they'll sing your praises. If you don't, they'll warn others not to use that product, right, on different forums and everything else. And I knew that. So it was important for me to make something that was, that was good. How many prototypes did you go through before you – figured out the fundamentals of a good design watch? Yeah, I would say we probably went through uh, three basic prototypes where we tried to figure out the everything from the casing to water tightness, um, even certain designs that we use on the dial that we don't even use today that we did during the first 300 original watches we sold. So I would even consider the first 300 a prototype phase. So we made, after those first few prototypes where we finally pulled the trigger and said, hey, let's make 300 watches. If we sell them by the end of the year, we'll keep going. If it falls short and it's a dud, you know, it was a, a great try and we gave it a valiant effort, but we're not going to, you know, sink all of our finances into you, something you that's actually, not going to work. actually, we would refer to that as almost validation. You went through mm -hmm. a, like a prototype, you got the three, and then you make 300. That's like a validate stage where you kind of go, okay, we think we're on to something. We think we've got it. And now you take it to that before you kind of go, okay, we're ready to launch and to think about what this company may look like. So yeah. it's fascinating that you're, you're kind of going through this process. Exactly. Um, and we launched, so to speak, those 300 watches in our business at the Southeastern Wildlife Expo in Charleston, South Carolina, which is actually coming up here this weekend. And we, we had some success down there, and that's when we knew we, we probably had something. And we were contacted by Garden and Gun magazine, which is probably where David that's saw That's one of them. That's right. Go. Yeah. In the fall for uh, their gift guide. 
and I credit those. Not a bad magazine to be associated with, Let me tell with, you, by the way. let me tell you, that, that basically lifted us up off the ground. You know, we were, we were doing well. We'd sold some watches. But when they put us in the gift guide, that really gave us the boost that we needed to, uh, to pull the trigger on making another iteration, tweaking some design uh, things that we wanted to do in the watch and, and really pumping out some more and selling those. So. Can I pull out um, two interesting lessons that I think you touched on just in that part of your story, Michael? One is, I think historically, if you've been an incumbent, a major long-term player in an industry, you could have had a huge advantage. But as I listened to you talk about some of the, the, the capabilities you discovered, new tools, um, you talked about you could find packaging through Alibaba as an example. I think that ought to be encouraging to anybody that's thinking about launching something. If you're willing to lean in and maybe learn about a new uh, capability, explore a new world perhaps you have not had, things exist today that, as you just said, did not exist 15 years ago. So that's super cool. Opens up all kinds of opportunities when you're getting started. Levels that playing field a little bit. And then just listening to you talk about selling at that wildlife show, We've talked about this before. There are riches in the niches. You'd, sometimes you just don't want to start out trying to be all things to all people. I love the fact that you narrowed the world of watches down to uh, specific targeted audiences. I think that's brilliant. You know, that's a great thing that you just touched on, I think, because I've had a few people tell me, you know, this watch is every bit as functional for, say, a bartender in Seattle as it is for an angler in Charleston. You know, why aren't you marketing to the bartender in Seattle? Well, I think part of our success has to do with what you just mentioned is that we are kind of in a niche and we're targeting that outdoor market with this watch. And, you know, who knows? The business will grow. The The story may the, be a, a background story on how we got started in angling and now we're, you know, a watch for everybody. This It's yet to be determined, right? But It, it is fascinating when I think about, I mean, a really good example of this would be like Air Jordans. They wanted to design the best basketball shoe. I can remember in seventh and eighth grade going, that's the best basketball shoe ever. And now it's a fashion statement. It grew into fashion. It was a niche, best basketball shoe, but then everybody started wearing it. What I hear you say is like focus in on that niche, be very distinctive, and then the another audience may follow but you guys have been very specific about what you're going after. And you've seen that even in the watch industry a little bit. You referenced Breitling earlier, focusing on aviation, Rolex, Tudor, a couple other brands doing dive watches, but golf watch, you know, that's kind of a new thing. So that's that. there's innovation in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I want to transition a little bit because um, now that you know, okay, let's move through. You're kind of, you've got some, a successful product, or you think it's going to be successful. You know, you've gotten some note, you've gotten some awareness. Now you've got to launch a business, and you decided to launch your business primarily. Was that business to business, business to consumer? How did you go about doing that? So from day one, we set out to put the watches in retail. And we were pretty, I'd say, particular about who we wanted to do business with. We really embraced the independent owner, shop owner. We targeted men's fine clothiers around, the, which is a popular thing in the Southeast, uh, jewelers, and even specialty type stores like marinas and, and places that would carry a watch like, like we make. And we grew that business over the last four years or so. And this is, you know, this is going to be interesting to the, the listener, but 
we are going to be pulling out of retail as of March 15th of this year. And we've spent the last five years in retail and noticed that our online sales are far outpacing our retail. Our retail continues to become a smaller and smaller percentage of our overall sales. And that's not the only factor, though. So before we just make a a decision like that, I mean, we really put in the research. So we spent several months. Again, we don't we don't do anything on a knee jerk reaction, but we did a price elasticity survey with our customer to figure out, okay, can we do two or three times the volume if we get our prices into a certain range? And if we can, what does that look like? Does that mean we eliminate the middleman? Do we eliminate that margin? to put that watch into a price where our more consumers will purchase the watch. And ultimately, I think that's, you know, that is where we're headed. I think that's what we're going to do. Um, another factor is just commerce in general. Over the last couple of years, we've seen competition from other watch companies who are direct-to-consumer businesses. Um, here's an interesting stat for you. I'm friends with a buddy who prints a... Uh, who's an editor of a watch magazine. It's called Watch You Seek. And when we first started, there were less than 10 watch companies that year in the United States when I was contemplating the idea of launching. So this would have been about six or seven years ago. And then last year, he said there were over 100. So the competition is getting fierce in the direct-to-consumer watch, even just the watch business in the U.S. Um, So we see the writing on the wall that if we are to compete and sustain our business and thrive, that this is the model that we're going to have to go to. So can I ask you a couple of sure. questions about that decision? So just highlighting, that's a big strategic shift. So you think about retail. Do you think of retail, in your experience for Hook & Gaff, as a mistake or a critical stage that you needed to take the company through to get to where you are? What a great question. Wow. At this point, I definitely do not consider it a mistake. I've, I've made some great friends. Those individual shop owners are still friends. They're still ambassadors for our brand. They helped build the brand, at least in the Carolinas where we started. You know, uh, We've got 50-plus dealers that we're pulling out of, so it's obviously not an easy decision. But by no means do I, I consider it a mistake. I think it was just part of the learning learning process, learning, you know, learning the business. And fortunately... We did it at a time where I think we can survive something like that, where I can stay on good terms with these shop owners and I can buy my inventory back. And, you know, I don't know that a lot of, you know, well, I know this for a fact, a lot of a lot of businesses wouldn't do that. And, you know, I'm trying to keep that goodwill with them. Like I said before, you don't want to burn bridges. You don't want to throw your name tag down and walk out the door and say I'm done because that's not the way you treat people. Yeah, I appreciate you being transparent about that because I, I was sensing that you would probably say, no, this is not a mistake, but it may it may have gotten us to where we are, but it may not be the approach that is going to get you where you're trying to go next. Exactly. And, and so I, I would just point out to a lot of our listeners, that's not uncommon. You know, you start with one approach, and then as you mature, you shift to a new approach. So the, the other point that I wanted to make in listening to your story, you're not just all of a sudden jumping completely from retail to online direct-to-consumer without experience. You're not having to bet the farm. You just said you've been there and you've seen that grown. So there's a lot of wisdom in that. It makes for – there's still risk always when you make a strategic bet. But uh, you've hedged that risk. You're transitioning in a smart way. 
Yeah. And, you know, I'll add one more thing to that because we do some some custom work. So we're able to supplant some of that retail business with uh, watches that we've done for for businesses with logo, you know, logo watches. So we've made some watches for some boat manufacturers, for some businesses who are giving them as uh, some sort of gift, dealer gift, retirement gift, corporate gifting. I think that's going to be a big part of our business that we've kind of um, morphed into a little bit over the last year too. Kind of like, you know, our friends at Ubi, uh, Tom Merritt has been a great mentor for me over at Ubi. And, uh, and I would say that I don't think they set out for that to be the model in the beginning. In fact, I know they didn't. They set out to be a retail business and they morphed into this corporate gifting, uh, not gifting, but corporate uniform type business. All right, we got to get Ubi on here because for, for, if you're listening, you're going, who is Ubi? Uh, these guys have an apparel company. They're out of the uh, same area, sort of Greenville, South Carolina. Now, awesome guys. Uh, both uh, you mentioned Tom, and then there's Mike Pareo. Uh, so, Shane, we, note to self here, we got to get those guys on <laughs> we, here. We will so, get them on. Um, I do have, I, I think, an insight for me in listening to you, Michael, is Oftentimes, what initially drives, say, an entrepreneur is a gut instinct or gut feeling about something. And you kind of alluded to that in regards to you have a, a, an ability to maybe look at something and go, hey, why is it you ask questions? Why has it been like this for 300 years and no one's thought about this? And it's a gut instinct. But what's fascinating about that is you didn't just take a gut instinct to move away from the retail business as much as business to consumer, but you did it through data. And I found that really interesting. I think sometimes as entrepreneurs, we kind of go, hey, my gut's telling me I got to go a different direction. But you backed that feeling up with some information. And you mentioned a study that you did, uh, a pricing study that you did. I'm curious about that. Why, why that decision to versus just kind of going with your gut? Well, that goes back to probably my engineering background where, you know, we did a lot of statistics in industrial engineering. And while these days I don't much like to crunch numbers and and do that math myself, I will definitely not make a decision without looking at Mm -hmm. the numbers. You know, the numbers don't lie. Everybody, everybody knows that. So before you, you make a gut, you know, you're, you you know, you got to listen to your gut too. Your gut's usually right. But you need to back that up with the numbers. One of our friends we work with at Chick-fil-A says, hey, in God we trust, all others bring data. <laughs> <laughs> so I love true. it. I love it. Well, I appreciate you You kind of opening your heart to these are tough decisions. And I think as entrepreneurs, oftentimes you find yourselves in a spot where you have to make a tough decision. I'm curious. Did you have folks around you? Do you have a board? Are you have good friends? Do you have a network that helps you navigate some of these tougher decisions? Yeah, great question. So my buddy, uh, Gash Clayton, is my business partner. Uh, we went to college together, and he was, other than my wife, he was the first person I told about the business idea. I was keeping it close to the vest and didn't want the word to get out that I had this great idea for a watch company. Well, I called Gash. He's just a brilliant, uh, creative Mind and designer and graphic. with a cool name, I'm with, 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 right. with such Gash, a cool Give me name, that right? name. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, called him up and, and told him what we were doing. Told him I had a name. We ended up coming up with the logo in about a 48-hour period that has stuck with us since the beginning. Just a, a great logo, very recognizable, which I think is important for for branding. And and maybe I should touch on that story real quick because 
our, our, the name of our company was something different in the beginning, in the very beginning before we launched. I had a conversation with our patent attorney, and he was an older gentleman who was experienced and, and had seen a lot of these come and go. And he spoke to me and said, you know, give it two weeks. Go think on the name and, and really think of something that you can brand. And he was, he was just spot on. Because if I had not changed the name, which I see everywhere, this logo would not exist. And the That's great brand, advice. Yes, yeah. yes, it was fantastic. I mean, because basically what I hear you saying is, he said, sit and chew on that name for two weeks. Yes. And I think oftentimes in a lot of decisions, we don't spend enough time kind of in the margin or creating enough white space to actually think about some of these decisions. And, and the branding one is so critical, right? So As you crucial. move forward, so uh, great advice. Yeah, you got to check out the uh, the logo if you're listening. We'll get Michael to tell you how to go, where to go see it. But he's kind of built – uh, an, a fish hook and a golf club into it in a very clever, subtle, nuanced way. Well, we've got we've got one we use for golf and one we use for uh, our angling segment. So our angling side has a hook and a gaff. Do you know what a gaff is? It, so a gaff is like a bigger hook. So if you're about to gaff a fish over the side of the boat, it's a you know it's a bigger tool, and you'll see that on the. Uh, on the logo. And we'll put, ah, we'll put a bunch now. of this yeah, okay. um, in the show notes for you. So if you're yeah. driving, don't don't start Google searching right <laughs> now. But um, definitely um, take a look at some of the show notes because we want to make sure. And on that note, give us a sense of where they can find. If we've got folks out there that are looking for gifts or looking for themselves, where can they find more information about your watch company? Yeah, we're going to be launching a new website in conjunction with our new price structure on March 15th of this year, 2019. And we're excited about the new website where we're going to educate the consumer on our new direct-to-consumer business model and how that's beneficial for them. Uh, When we eliminate the retail margin, it allows us more room to innovate. Some of the things we've done with our latest watches, we've put new uh, tritium illumination in the watches like you might find in some higher end brands and this is just fantastic if you're up before the sunset sun rises and, and coming back after the sun sets if you're an angler or a hunter just enjoy being outdoors it's a feature that our customers were telling us they wanted we're able to do it now with new pricing structure and, and we'll continue to innovate it allows us more freedom to uh, to bring the customer what they want at a, at a more affordable price for the consumer that's awesome. I, and I got to say this, if you're listening, the watches look really cool. <laughs> you really gotta, I will be purchasing one <laughs> soon. And I, just exciting to hear about your business plan and where you're headed. I do. I, I rarely get to ask this question, but I feel like this is a great time to ask this question. So, Michael, what are you dreaming about when you think about Hook and Gaff and you guys are thinking together about what the future holds? What are you dreaming about? What are you excited about? You know what? That's a great question, and a lot of the the answer to that question has been reiterated for me here this week at this business conference we're at as we sit and listen to some of these great speakers. Um, The answer to that question was sort of revealed to me over the last, really, six months, and I think one of the things I struggled with with this business for the first four years was what is our higher purpose with this business, you know? Mm. I feel like in order to be a really successful business, you you must have a higher purpose. So for the last few years, I've poured into some charitable organizations. One that we we partner with quite often is an organization in Florida called Operation Wet Vet. 
And my buddy Ozzy runs that organization. And what happens is some of these war vets, combat vets come back and they're struggling with PTSD and they just need other people that are struggling with the same thing to partner with. And, and Ozzy does a great job with taking those guys out on the boat. And we uh, sponsor those guys with watches. And we've even brought them up to South Carolina to do a fishing trip out of Charleston. Uh, so we've, we've had a fun time with that and, and other nonprofits we work with in, in South Carolina in angling and hunting. Um, pretty much every nonprofit you can think of in fishing we've worked with, and it, it's been great. But that really has not been the higher purpose for me. It still really didn't like hit the nail on the head for me for our, what our higher purpose really is. So about six months ago, one of our uh, folks from the Brandon Agency, which is the agency we use for marketing, was up helping me shoot a brand video at my house. So we have this beautiful uh, stream that runs behind the house where I, I actually fly fish for trout and striped bass. Um, we spent a day on the golf course. We came back. We were fishing in the river. And, I mean, it was a hot day. So I was pouring sweat. I was exhausted. Then we shot the family out at the park, and we were putting together this nice video. And we come back to my workshop, <clears throat> and I'm sitting there, just pouring sweat in a chair, exhausted, and we were going to do a voiceover for the video. And he said, you know what, I'm going to set up a camera just for the heck of it. And uh, I said, okay. So he had the camera over here in the corner, and I kind of forgot about it. I was doing the voiceover. And he said, so tell me, you know, what it is about Hook and Gaff that you really want the customer to know. I'm going to get a little emotional talking about it right now. But, um, Sorry. You're good. Oh, you're good. What I want the customer to know, and, and what I really want to instill in the customer is that, and this is what I said in the video, I said, when, I, when I'm old and gray, I'm looking back on my life, I know that the time that I spent wisely was the time I spent with those that I loved doing the things that I love to do. Wow. That's it. So here's a, a lesson. Um, Whatever you're doing, can you find that level of passion? And uh, because that's a beautiful thing right there. Yeah, when you can combine your passion with your purpose, it's powerful. And uh, I want to say thanks so much, Michael, for sharing um, not only what you're passionate about, but I think we ended this in an awesome way because it really exhibits what your what your purpose is and um those things combined make for a powerful business plan well, and uh, we wish all the best to you to your business um i know david and i are anxious to get online here and look at some of these watches <laughs> no doubt. um there's definitely an opportunity there and uh, we're just so grateful for you and anything we can do to help you we're excited for you as listeners that uh, you had a chance today to listen to michael and uh, him talk about his business and how passionate he is about it and um, it's exciting because each and every day, this is one of the passions that David and I have and Jeff and Kevin has ha have as well with Launch University. It's, it's really connecting other launchers together in a community um, where we can become difference makers. And uh, that's what we're all here to do. And so we're so grateful that you decided to tune in today and listen. And so until the next time, we'll see you on Launch University. Thanks for listening to the Launch University podcast. We hope it's helped you move from go-getter to difference maker. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more helpful resources, visit launchuniversity.com.